Hello and welcome to MedTalk's Superbug series. I'm Anthony Frangi. Microscopic in size but forceful in nature, superbugs seem to be able to outsmart the toughest antibiotic defences. But how do doctors and veterinarians take on these strains of mutated bacteria in the clinical setting? And what's in their arsenal of antibiotics and how dire can it get when a patient or animal fails to respond to any form of treatment? Joining us here at the third National Antimicrobial Resistance Forum in Brisbane is Dr. Trent Yarwood. He's a specialist infectious diseases physician with Queensland Health. Also joining us, Dr. Hugh Wright, an infectious diseases physician practicing at the Royal Brisbane Hospital and also at uh, the University of Queensland Centre for Clinical Research, and Professor Glenn Browning, a veterinary microbiologist at the University of Melbourne, and Dr Laura Harderfelt, an equine medicine vet and research fellow at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, everyone. Trent, if I could start with you, what are superbugs and how did they come about? Superbugs is a, is a popular term which people use to refer to bacteria mainly, which antibiotics don't work against anymore. Antibiotic resistance happens all the time. It's a, it's a natural event that can happen just as a random chance. But we know that using antibiotics and exposing bacteria to these antibiotics makes it happen more frequently. And why are they so difficult to treat? If a bacteria is resistant to just one antibiotic, then we can usually find another one. But but the bugs that we consider to be superbugs, if you like, are often resistant to many, many antibiotics. And the the only ones that, that may be effective are, are older antibiotics, ones that are, have more side effects, or, or in some cases there can be no effective antibiotics at all. Hugh, can I just come to you? Are you seeing different types of superbugs in your work? Increasingly we're seeing various types of superbugs become more prevalent both in Australia but certainly worldwide and we're certainly having to come up with new and novel strategies in terms of treating them. So different types require different responses in terms of treatment and medications? That's right and and we have had some improvements in the last five to ten years in terms of new antibiotics that help in terms of increasing our armamentarium against bacteria that are resistant to many of the pre-existing antibiotics but that varies obviously depending on you know which bacterium and the mechanism of resistance that they show. Trent I'll, I'll add you into this question as well with Hugh what can the path of treatment look like uh, and, and what do drugs do on these on these complex infections? When people first present with an infection, we don't know whether they've got, uh, well, sometimes it can be a virus, not even a bacteria at all, or a standard bacterium or one of these very resistant ones. And normally what we do is based on the, the syndrome that patients present with, we treat them with antibiotics according to the guidelines, and then we wait for the results of our tests to come back to see whether, whether the bacteria have these resistances or not. For, for a patient who's got a resistant organism, what we might see is that they might continue to get more unwell even though we're treating them with the, with the standard antibiotics. And that's when we need to start thinking about whether it might be one of these resistant germs. And then we need to go and, and change the antibiotics that we're given, giving to ones that are, are going to be effective. And for you, Hugh? Yeah, so I think there's really two components, as Trent's already alluded to. So our empiric antibiotics, that, that's the antibiotic that we use as our, as our first line, our first guess when we don't know exactly what the infection is. With increasing resistance, we're more likely to get that wrong. 
And the longer you have between when you have a presentation with an infection to when you get effective therapy, we know that people do worse as a result of not getting effective therapy. Are there times when you or clinicians you know have had to resort to to radical or unusual treatment options here? Because the bacteria is resistant to our first-line therapy, they're usually first-line therapy for a reason, usually because they're the most effective or they're the safest. So then we have to use alternate antibiotics that might not work as well or have a higher risk of doing harm to a patient as a result of antimicrobial resistance. I'd like to bring the vets in now, uh, Professor Glenn Browning and also Dr. Laura Harderfeld. Glenn, firstly to you, are superbugs as challenging in the animal world? I guess the first answer to that is within Australia, we haven't really seen the same problems in animals that we see in in the medical sphere. There are some problems internationally, um, probably where in countries where antibiotic usage is less well controlled in in the agriculture sector than than it is in Australia, where we have quite significant restrictions on what what veterinarians working with our food animals can can use. And so many of the antibiotics that are the last line defences for medical usage are not antibiotics that we, we legally can use in veterinary medicine in Australia. Detecting diseases in animals can already be difficult, as we know. How do vets know that an animal may be fighting a superbug? In some respects, we have the advantage that an individual animal can be sacrificed from, from a herd to be able to establish what the herd is suffering from. So we're much more often dealing with animals as populations. But otherwise, for, for our companion animals, our dogs and cats and horses, we use pretty much the same tools that are used in human medicine to be able to diagnose disease. And so we can, we can culture an organism from an animal that's suffering from disease and then establish whether antibiotics will work, specific antibiotics will work against that organism. Laura, you've seen many different breeds of horses and related species. Are there any breeds more susceptible to superbugs than others? I don't think there's more breeds, um, that are, any specific breed that is more susceptible, but I think um, there are certain types of horses that are more likely to be exposed to antibiotics. Um, so um, our elite athletic horses um, are more likely to come under veterinary intervention um, than, say, uh, a kid's pony out in the paddock. What about um, superbugs? This is a, a question for, for both Glenn and, and yourself, Flora. Superbugs transferring from animal to animal, is that possible? Yeah, it's definitely possible. Um, and we do see um, spread of bacteria within a population of animals, the same as occurs in, in hospitals and in, uh, in communities. Um, in household members, we see spread of bacteria between pets and, animal, and people, um, and we see that between horses and their owners as well. And I guess I'd add that for a veterinarian, a human is just another form of animal, and <laughs> we also see spread from humans into animals. Is, is, is it difficult for, for vets to have successful outcomes when treating superbug infection in animals? I think some of that depends on what you call a successful outcome. Right. Um, well, I mean, how would you define a successful outcome? So, it, and it depends on the, the group of animals you're talking about. Mm. So because we treat our companion animals as individual animals, our measure of success is the survival and an ongoing healthy life of that specific animal. And in that situation 
the outcomes will be or the, the likelihood of an outcome is pretty much the same as with a human patient. I think one of the advantages, if you like, that we have is that we probably less frequently deal with very severely ill patients, um, so we don't have as many animals in intensive care. We have some intensive care, but not the same extent of intensive care as human medicine does. We don't very commonly have animals on on things that will damage their immune system, like chemotherapy. We don't treat cancers quite as aggressively as, as they are treated in human medicine. In a, a population of animals on a farm, it's quite a different situation where what we're looking to do is stop that outbreak rather than cure an individual animal. And so there are a lot of different options we can bring to bear on that situation that aren't an option when you're dealing with an individual person or animal. You know, in addition to Glenn's comments, just say that um, outbreaks of antimicrobial resistant infections in food producing animals are exceptionally rare um, in terms of disease causing um, antimicrobial resistant infections. We just, we in the baseline levels of antimicrobial resistance in food producing animals in Australia are exceptionally low compared to other parts of the country and um, disease outbreaks tend to be uh, due to pathogens in those species um, that are resistant but um, outbreak for some other usually management reason. Question for uh, Dr Trent Yarwood and Dr Hugh Wright. How closely do you look at what's happening in, in the veterinary world when it comes to, to superbugs? So I think we're well aware that you know, a significant pro- uh, proportion of antibiotic use is in uh, the animal sphere, uh, animal husbandry and veterinary medicine. And so I think we're aware of that use. The vets might be more aware of what's happening in human medicine than we are in the reverse. I think that's probably true. One of the things that's really important, though, is that we're all starting to come together now and and deal with drug resistance using what's called a One Health approach, where we consider that everybody lives in the same world, humans and animals and the environment as well, and, and dealing with drug resistance just in human hospitals is not going to solve the problem. Mm. What's exciting you when it comes to clinical research? What are you hearing about, whether it's, it's here in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, or perhaps uh, in your travels overseas? We've spent... Uh, a long time now sort of measuring the problem of drug resistance. We know what proportion of, of, of bugs are very resistant. We know lots about antibiotic use in humans. We're starting to get a lot more information about, about antibiotic use in animals. But really, I think where the frontier is now is working out how we can use all this information to change the behaviour of doctors who prescribe antibiotics and vets. Mm. Uh, and, and using all the information that we've gathered over the last 10 or 15 years to, to really put, put change in place. I think there's a recognition that it's not going to be a one-tier approach, that it's really got to be multifaceted. So, for instance, even though there's been lots of progress in terms of developing new antibiotics that may be useful in treating some of these superbugs, that treatment, new treatment options alone are not going to be the answer, and that antimicrobial resistance is something that we're going to uh, be facing ongoing in medicine. Uh, that resistance develops quickly uh, to a new agent after it's released. And so looking at you know, antibiotic prescribing practice and community attitudes towards uh, antibiotics is really important as yeah. well. Can we learn from uh, research in, uh, that's coming out from other countries? Are there, is there some success stories that we're perhaps not hearing enough about? I think we're all in this together. And yeah. I, I think that, that 
we're all very good at keeping abreast of what's happening overseas. We're we're very lucky in Australia in that the drug resistance problem here is a lot a lot less than it is in some countries overseas. So, uh, you know, I think I think everybody's working together on this problem. And well, we've just heard a great talk from Professor Sarah Cosgrove about mm. the work that's happening at Johns Hopkins uh, in terms of their antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, uh, program and how that impacts and how that's directly impacted their rates of resistance. Mm-hmm. I think in some ways it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle and really we're recognising a problem that we've always had. There have always been resistant bacteria and then when we uh, have a selection pressure, which is antibiotic treatment, inevitably you're going to have an effect in terms of the breeding of resistance. But these sorts of forums that we're having here today are really important to hear more broadly than our own backyard there are lots of warning uh, tales from overseas in terms of what not to do and and thing, uh, pitfalls to avoid. So we're 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 learning all the time. Aren't Absolutely. We? Yeah. And what about in the veterinary world, Glenn? Can I go to you? What what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Perhaps clinical trials locally. What are we What are we so, discovering? So I guess uh, part of the answer to this is that it's not only looking at other parts of the world, but it's also the medical world and the animal health world looking at each other and. Mm. We're actually part of a, a combined One Health group in Melbourne that that includes both infectious diseases physicians and veterinarians, um, as well as pharmacists and nurses, all looking at what we can do to solve this problem. And to a large extent, the solutions are in human behaviour and how we respond to challenging situations. And in both areas, we're dealing with human behaviour rather than necessarily the bacterial behaviour, which is something that we have limited capacity to to influence. And for you, Laura? Yeah, I think um, there's some really fantastic work coming out of um, Europe in terms of veterinary antimicrobial stewardship programs. But Australia, we have very different um, breeding systems for our animals and management systems. And so while there is some things we can learn from overseas, I think there's also, um, we really need to um, work with our human colleagues, and in particular G- the GPs, I think, because the vets and the GPs face a lot of the same issues um, and have a lot of the same challenges um, going forward. And so I think those groups are probably a better fit in Australia than um, looking towards the Scandinavian countries, which have a, d- a much different approach to antimicrobial stewardship. It's always difficult to crystal ball, but let's just do it for the, for the purposes of this podcast. What will this conversation we're having today, what will, it, what will it sound like in five or ten years' time? Trent, can I go to you first? I think it'll sound fairly similar because resistance is a problem that we're always going to have. We're, you know, we're not going to beat resistance. We're not going to make it go away. So we're always going to need to be trying to keep ahead of the curve with, with what to do about these resistant bacteria. So in five years' time, we'll have new antibiotics and hopefully we'll be prescribing them in a, in a, in a better way. There will still be bugs that get resistant to those new bacteria, just like they have to all of the other ones. So mm. it, it's really it's really an ongoing process. It's not a problem that's fixable. It's, it needs to be managed. And that's a really interesting point that you make, Trent, because when you talk to people out uh, in the community, those who have to go to hospital for whatever or, or a loved one going to hospital, that's the question they kind of raise, don't they, all the time, is, is how safe am I in hospitals today? Um, how likely am I going to get a superbug? because we hear about it in the media so much. We're still very lucky in Australia that overall these sort of very resistant infections are rare. And, and you know, you're, if you've got a severe infection, you're much safer in hospital than out of it. But we, we want to make sure that, that people who come to hospital have as, 
as low a risk of getting a, a resistant infection as possible. And that means that we need to concentrate not only on how we treat infections, but making sure that we're preventing them in the first place. So, you know, concentrating on washing hands and making sure people are vaccinated and all those things that stop you from getting an infection in the first place. And then it doesn't matter whether the bug's resistant or not because you don't need, you haven't got the infection. And to you, Hugh, what, what sort of conversation will we be hearing? I guess what you would like to hear in five or so years. Even though we are lucky in Australia in terms of the resistance rates, we know that the habits of prescribers is still suboptimal. And so there's still lots of work and lots that we can achieve in terms of encouraging people to use this wonderful discovery that we have, which are antibiotics appropriately. And a lot of that, you know, a lot of the inappropriate prescribing is driven by concern and, and fear about you know, outcomes for, for patients or animals. Uh, and people, when they're prescribing, have the very best of intentions. And so we need to continue to have conversations where we support people and encourage people to look at antibiotic prescribing to make sure we're doing it as well as we possibly can. Because if we improve prescribing, which essentially means that we would be prescribing less, then there's less selection pressure for resistance. Laura? I'm really hopeful in the veterinary world that um, in five or ten years' time we'll be much more along the track of having ingrained antimicrobial stewardship programs in veterinary practice. Um, at the University of Melbourne and the National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship, we've um, started that process and we have a research, an ongoing research program working with a group of veterinary clinics to implement antimicrobial stewardship in a much more formalised sense, um, as has been done in human medicine. And I'm really hopeful that in five or ten years' time, this will be will be along that track that the medicine folks have, you know, um, are well progressed along, and and will have um, will have programs that um, that we know can uh, improve prescribing in veterinary medicine. And Glenn. Not sure I can add more than what Laura's already said. I think I, what I would hope is that we've got um, much better evidence and what we're talking about in five years' time is the evidence that we've got that particular things work in convincing veterinarians, medical practitioners and their patients and clients um, that antibiotics aren't needed in some situations and therefore that, that they accept that that's the situation. So as a result we use fewer antibiotics in situations where they're not needed. Um, mm. We certainly don't want to stop all antibiotic use. They are essential for both human and animal health, but we want to ensure that where we are using them is only in the situations where they'll actually make a difference. Yeah, we, we often think that antibiotic stewardship is just about using fewer antibiotics to stop resistance, but really it's about making sure that... that patients, human or animal, get the right antibiotics at the right time. And sometimes that's no antibiotics and sometimes it, it, it is antibiotics, but the, you know, it has a, a benefit to individual patients as well as to the world in preventing resistance. And when you come to a forum uh, such as this, the, the Third National Antimicrobial Resistance Forum, what do you want to take away from, from today? I guess uh, new ideas is what, what I always focus on. So new ideas that particularly we in animal health can take away from from the medical world and then apply in our area. I guess I also hope that that we communicate what we're doing in animal health through to our medical colleagues and that they they take away probably some ideas for their world but also hopefully a, a recognition that that we are trying to achieve uh, improvements in our antibiotic use in, in animal health. And for you Laura? 
I think also in addition to what Glenn said, which is obviously really important, um, meeting new people and um, forming those connections um, because uh, as I said earlier, a lot of what we're trying to do in animal health is really similar to um, the challenges in in human health and we don't want to reinvent the wheel. Um, We want to really um, use the learnings from from the, our medical colleagues, so I think meeting people and networking um, these forums are really invaluable in that regard. And Trent, I think what the others have said is absolutely true. It's about working out what works and how we can apply it in the best way. And and there's no medicine, human or animal, is so complicated that there's no never going to be one absolutely right way of doing things. So learning from others' experience and making sure that we all will do it better next time is, is, is you, you you can't do that in a room by yourself. You need to make other contacts to do it. Dr. Trent Yarwood, Dr. Hugh Wright, Professor Glenn Browning, and Dr. Laura Hardefield. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Thank Thanks you. very much. Thank you.